Welcome to the Corian Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. This is Dr. Sharia Trivedi, an internist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And Dr. Victoria Mladenovic, cardiology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Today, we will be focusing on guideline-directed medical therapy, aka GDMT, in heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction, part two. Shreya, let's get right into it. We got a lot of good ground to cover. Yes, yes. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, recap of GDMT and CKD. With progressive CKD, what GDMT medications can you start, continue, or stop? Pearl 2. Hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate. What does the data on hydral isosorbide tell us and what does it not tell us and what are the medication's limitations? Pearl 3. Ivabradine. What do you do if your patient's heart rate is still above 70 despite maximal beta blockade? Pearl 4, inpatient versus outpatient initiation of GDMT. What are pros and cons of starting GDMT inpatient versus outpatient? Pearl 5, ejection fraction recovery. Do you still keep patients on GDMT once their EF recovers? I am so excited about part two to shine light on some of the meds that don't get as much attention. But before we do that, let's do some spaced repetition. Why don't we review the quadruple guideline-directed medical therapy GDMT that we talked about back in part one, but I thought we should kick it up a notch and review them a bit in the context of advanced chronic kidney disease, CKD. Shreya, I'm so glad we're talking about this because in clinical practice, you see so many notes that say, we can't start an ACE or an ARB due to CKD, or we can't start an SGLT2 inhibitor because the creatinine's too high. Yep. So let's relook at the GDMT meds. When can we start them, stop them? Is it okay to continue as kidney disease progresses? And for that, let's hear from Dr. Greg Katz, a cardiologist at NYU. When I think about the, the goal of treatment for many heart failure patients, it's quadruple therapy. Get them on a beta blocker, get them on an ACE, an ARB, an ARNI, get them on a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist and get them on SGLT2. So you have those four pillars of therapy. And what's really, really nice about beta blockers is they don't affect kidney function, they don't affect GFR. And so with a beta blocker, you feel totally comfortable pushing that dose as long as the patient is not orthostatic and it doesn't matter what their creatinine is because creatinine is not affected by, by the beta blocker. When it comes to the ACEs, the ARNIs, and the ARBs, then you're expecting a 30% rise in their creatinine, even if in the long term it's nephroprotective. And there's no absolute cutoff for when I wouldn't start those medications. But I am watching their kidney function on the, the metabolic panel. I am watching their potassium, and I'm making sure that the patient is not orthostatic when I'm thinking about either continuing it or increasing those doses. Okay, so beta blockers don't affect kidney function. Therefore, we can continue them as long as the patient can tolerate it from a blood pressure standpoint. Yep. And then with ACE, ARBs, ARNIs, we expect that creatinine go up. There is certainly less data as we get to CKD stage five, 
but you can start continue that RAS blockade as long as that blood pressure and potassium allows. And that's where we can think about potassium binding drugs, right? So we can make sure we get that neurohormonal blockade for your patient's heart and for their kidneys. And we do have a whole episode on hyperkalemia and management that goes over all that. When it comes to the MRAs and the SGLT2s, you have like you have a little bit more of a numerical obstacle when when it comes to those medications. And so it's often quoted that if the creatinine is over 2.5, the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist shouldn't be started, but it probably can be continued. And with the SGLT2 inhibitor, the GFR of 20 is probably your cutoff for when you can't start it, but you can continue it. And, you know, at the end of the day, like patients don't fit into these precise boxes very frequently, but it's good to have numbers in general because it gives us a sense of like, when do I need to be most worried about somebody? And when do I, when should I like really be double checking what that up-to-date article says before I put the order in or before I assign that the prescriptions go to the pharmacy? One thing that made me pause that he said is that we can probably continue that MRA and SGLT2 inhibitor as the CKD progresses, which I really appreciated since I often find myself a little squeamish when we get to CKD stage three or five. Absolutely. Yeah, right? Stage three is where I think that you are both faced with your most challenging clinical decisions, but you also have the most opportunity to change the trajectory of their kidney disease. And so you need to look at stage three patients as a real opportunity for you to slow down the decline in their GFR that's going to necessarily happen over time. If somebody is already on a medication and they're tolerating that medication, and we know what the side effects of these drugs are. A mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist raises potassium and it lowers blood pressure. An SGLT2 inhibitor has the risk of genitourinary tract infections, um, both bacterial and fungal. And it also has the risk of euglycemic DKA. And if you know what the risks of a medication are and you have a patient who is on the medication and is not having those side effects, you need to feel comfortable or you should feel comfortable continuing a medication that a patient is very clearly tolerating. And so there's a very big difference between introducing something into somebody's biology and just continuing them. And like therapeutic inertia is powerful in both directions. It's powerful in the way that we can continue patients on medications that are working for them, but it's also powerful in the way that it holds us up from putting medications on a patient's med list that they would actually benefit from. Therapeutic inertia. Oh, I love thinking about that and how I do bat my eyes when I see an ARB or an SGLT2 inhibitor in a patient with CKD stage four or even end stage renal disease. But ultimately, like I have that relief that we can continue if the patient's not having side effects. There's pretty clear data for ACE inhibitors, for angiotensin receptor blockers, for SGLT2 inhibitors that those drugs are nephroprotective and they slow the progression of chronic kidney disease. And that data is like pretty clear. It's been replicated over and over and over again. And one of the nice things about the overlap between the cardiovascular system and the, the, the renal system is blood pressure is a target of therapy for both of them. And the heart doesn't like pumping against high blood pressure, just like the kidney doesn't like receiving high blood pressure. And for a patient who has chronic kidney disease, I try to not just be creatinine centric. And I try to think about what are the commonalities between what's going to help their cardiovascular function and what's going to be nephroprotective. And so blood pressure, reducing the pressure that the glomerulus faces, thinking about 
ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, SGLT2 inhibitors as being things that will preserve renal function, even if they transiently make the blood test look worse. Exactly, exactly. So as a recap of our of our recap and space repetition, I think the big takeaway here is to have that intestinal fortitude, as Dr. Katz would say, to push through that creatinine when we see it looking a bit worse and managing the hyperkalemia with potassium binders and doing our best to start or continue that beta blocker, ACE, ARB, ARNI, MRA, SGLT2 inhibitors in our patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. And with that, we'll leave you with this last little practical tip from Dr. Katz. I will often, for a patient, especially as a patient who has borderline renal function, who I'm worried about hyperkalemia, I will start the SGLT2 inhibitor along with the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist because of the way that SGLT2 inhibitors protect against hyperkalemia. And, you know, neither of those medications has a big role in what the glomerular perfusion is. And, you know, you do see a small rise in creatinine when you start either of those medications just anecdotally, even if it's not proven in the lab. But starting them together gives you a little bit of a buffer against hyperkalemia, which is one of the things that you're really worried about with these things. Okay, now with that recap of GDMT in the context of CKD, let's get right into the B-team meds. These are the meds that get a little bit less of the limelight. Why don't we get started with hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate? Also known as isordil. Hydralazine and isordil are they they are essentially in combination used for vasodilatation. So they lower blood pressure by causing vasodilatation, and in that way, similar to the other agents, they remove some of the stress from the heart. The way that they're used typically are as additional agents on top of the medications that we've already discussed. So in patients who are already on max-tolerated doses of the ARNI, the beta blocker, the MRA, um, and the SGLT2 inhibitor, if they need additional hypertension management, hydralazine and isordil are good agents to add on. They're also used in patients who are unable to tolerate one or more of those classes of medications either due to renal dysfunction issues or electrolyte issues or side effects. That's Dr. Swetha Motwala, a cardiologist at UCSF. And so it's a class one recommendation to use hydral isordil in patients who self-identify as African-American after other GDMT is maxed. Now, we do want to make sure we address the challenging nature of this recommendation and the trials that they're based on up front. Exactly. So we wanted to address these studies head on and reconceive their takeaways. And we invite discussion from people of all perspectives and backgrounds on this issue. I very much worry about the over-extrapolation of trial data like we have that will lead to differences in how different groups of people are treated. And after we were sort of talking about it, I reread all the papers. It actually like kind of blew my mind what re-looking at them sort of like where the paths that I, I kind of went down. I learned a ton. I talked to, I don't know, half a dozen people, maybe more. So I really appreciated his nuanced read on what the data does tell us and what the data does not tell us. All the data we have for Isordil and Hydrel initially come from the VHEF trial, which was published all the way back in 1986. Yeah, and to help us keep the trials a bit straight, the V in VHEFT stands for vasodilatory therapy. If you look at VHEFT, what did VHEFT look at? They looked at isosorbide and hydralazine 
they looked at prazosin, and they looked at placebo. And they found that the long-acting nitrate and hydralazine combination had sort of like a trend towards being better. And it looks like it was better compared to prazosin. It looks like it was better compared to placebo. But then if you look at the subgroup analysis of that, which wasn't published till a few years later, they really sort of separate out self-identified African-Americans versus everybody else. And most uh, th- that's a, it's a VA trial. So it's mostly people who identify as African-American and people who identify as white. Two big caveats that should keep anyone from applying those trial results to current day practice is that number one, VHAFT was done back in 1986, as Victoria just mentioned, and the standard of care was digoxin and diuretic. I mean, there wasn't even data on beta blockers then. Right. That was a totally different era. And then number two, we know that subgroup analysis, which was done from the VHAFT trial, is just hypothesis generating, right? So that's why AHEFT was designed, and the A in AHEFT stands for African-American. Isosorbide dinitrate and hydralazine to a placebo in a group of patients who are self-identified as African-American. They were a VA population, and a VA population is different than the population that many people who don't work in VAs treat. But they compared isosorbide dinitrate and hydralazine to a placebo. And what they found was that in self-identified African-Americans, isosorbide hydralazine compared to placebo leads to a mortality benefit. So much to unpack there. And the first thing to keep in mind when interpreting these results is that the VA population back in 2004 were total rock stars when it came to GDMT. Over 90% on ACE, ARBs, 80% on beta blockers, and about half on mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. And what I, I was so struck by rereading AHEFT and looking at what the other guideline-directed medical therapy they were on. And it's, it was really good. And so to see a benefit of isodil and hydralazine on top of pretty good medical therapy tells you that like there's a there there and you can't blow off that result. On top of at least two to three GDMT, we found that hydral isosorbide showed a mortality benefit. But the second thing to unpack here is that AHEFT, that trial was only done in the African-American population. A literal read of the data tells you that there's probably a benefit in this subgroup on top of our current GDMT, but I don't think that a literal read of the data tells you that there's no benefit in anybody else. Where's the evidence that hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate doesn't work in patients who identify as other races? I kept looking at this data and I'm like, where's the data that shows that nobody really benefits from this drug. And you're left with a subgroup analysis from VHEFT and the fact that AHEFT only included um, people who self-identified as one specific race. And the last thing that I found that was really nuanced and thought-provoking is thinking back to what may be a confounder and that it might be the etiology of the cardiomyopathy. The other thing that's notable about AHEFT is the proportion of patients who had ischemic cardiomyopathy was much lower than the proportion of patients who have ischemic cardiomyopathy in most other clinical trials. And so the majority of patients had either hypertensive cardiomyopathy or idiopathic cardiomyopathy. And so maybe the right distinction isn't based on self-identification of race, but etiology of cardiomyopathy because that's often not separated out in the clinical trials. So maybe it's the fact that a lot more of the patients had hypertensive cardiomyopathy or idiopathic cardiomyopathy that was a confounder. And maybe hydral isodel just works better in these etiologies. Yeah, exactly. 
And then the last very practical consideration about applying the AHAF trial to our current practices is just looking at the fine print of the doses that were used. So I was totally shocked when I realized how high the target doses of Hydrel and Isardil were in this study. They titrated Hydrel up to a total of 225 milligrams and Isardil up to 120 milligrams daily. I mean, Shreya, when I start these meds inpatient, I'm usually reaching for like 10 milligrams TID of each. And then you add to the fact that the nitrate titration is often limited by headache and that these are three times a day medications. And you end up in a situation where the narrow, narrow cross-section of patients who are indicated for it can tolerate it and who you can titrate it up for. It's such a small fraction. We like it because, again, they don't affect the creatinine. And it's really easy to prescribe a three times a day medicine. It's really hard to take a three times a day medicine. If you have a patient who, for whatever reason, cannot be on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB or an ARNI, then sure, it is totally fine to add in the long-acting nitrate and hydralazine combo and try to titrate it up as much as you possibly can. So when I meet a patient who happens to have Hydrel Isardil along with the rest of their laundry list of meds, what do you think, Shreya? Should I rock the boat a little bit and change things up? Yeah, you know, Victoria, when I find myself in these situations, I try to give this person the benefit of the doubt that someone really thought about their GDMT and there was a particular reason that maybe I don't know why their GDMT ended up this way versus that way. But we really probed our cardiologists on what they would do when they see a patient who's on hydral, isosorbide on their med rec, but not on other GDMT meds. So sometimes you can find a good reason. And sometimes it's that someone tried a low dose of something and there was some side effect and it wasn't clear what it was. And then it just got pulled forward in the patient history as an intolerance to whatever the medication was that was tried. Even in people who have borderline renal function, I will, if there isn't a compelling reason not to, if a patient comes to me on hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate, I will try to get them on some of the other agents that we spoke about. And I can think of a particular patient who had some renal dysfunction and was then committed at some point to hydralazine and isosorbide. And then, you know, over time, the renal function kind of stabilized. Her creatinine was in the twos, but it wasn't getting any worse. And so in collaboration with an outpatient nephrologist, we decided to try to do this cross titration and she is now completely off of her three times a day hydralazine and three times a day isardil and on maximum dose entresto. And it's, so it takes a little bit of digging. It takes a little bit of communication with um, other treating clinicians to figure out what issues came up in the past. And then not always, but sometimes you can actually get people on better meds. What a great story. And again, there is good data for this, not to add another trial into the mix, but when ACEs and ARBs actually came out, there was another trial conducted called VHEF2 that looked at enalopril versus hydral isosorbide. And of course, hydral isosorbide was inferior to the ACE inhibitor. So maybe the takeaway here is that next time you find yourself caring for a patient with hydral and isardil on their medication list, take a quick look back at the chart and investigate as to the reason why they're not on more preferred first-line agents. So to summarize this pearl on hydral isardil, this works by vasodilating. 
The con here is that your titration is going to be limited by headaches and blood pressure room on top of the other GDMT. And it is a three times a day medication. But one pro is that it doesn't affect kidney function or potassium directly. And then we'll let Dr. Katz summarize his takeaway on his close read of what the literature does and does not tell us. It's pretty clear to me that ACE inhibitors or ARBs or ARNIs are better than treating somebody with hydralazine and isosorbide by itself. But the additive nature of a long-acting nitrate plus hydralazine and the effect that that will have on nitric oxide and vasodilation and blood pressure control and yada, yada, like all of the pathophysiologic theories about why that would be better, I'm honestly like not fully persuaded that that won't work in self-identified white patients or self-identified Hispanic patients or self-identified Asian patients who don't have ischemic cardiomyopathies and have hypertensive cardiomyopathy. And what I took away from rereading those trials is if I have room to treat somebody's blood pressure and they have a reduced ejection fraction, maybe anybody would benefit from that. And like, yes, I will be probably more aggressive in somebody who has a hypertensive cardiomyopathy or an idiopathic cardiomyopathy. Okay, next player on the B team, Ivabradine. Ivabradine? How do you say it? Ivabradine. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the B team, I feel like I'm getting flashbacks to when I was like the slowest kid in gym and would always be called last or second to last. Oh man, bad memories. Yes, yes, but yes. to understand the Ivabradine story, it really comes back to the idea that we talked about in part one, is that heart rate should really be thought of as a therapeutic target in heart failure. Yeah. And studies have shown that in patients with left ventricular dysfunction who have a heart rate greater than 70 beats per minute, they are at an increased risk of cardiovascular death and hospitalizations from heart failure compared to those whose resting heart rate is below 70. What we know is that there are, there are a lot of beneficial effects of beta blockers that aren't directly related to heart rate reduction. But we also know that heart, the lower the heart rate the better the outcomes in heart failure. And so Ivabradine, I would think of as an add-on medication or an adjunctive agent to be used in patients who need additional lowering of the heart rate after they're already on either the optimal dose of a beta blocker or the maximum tolerated dose of a beta blocker due to other potential side effects. Okay, so it looks like the key here is to only consider Ivabradine once GDMT is optimized, particularly when the patient is on maximally tolerated doses of beta blockade. Victoria, can you remind us again, how exactly does Ivabradine work? Shreya, how could we forget? Ivabradine inhibits the funny current <sighs> and thereby controls diastolic depolarization of the SA node and lowers heart rate. Ah, uh, okay, funny current. I honestly haven't thought about that since med school. So the data for Ivabradine comes from the SHIFT trial. And in this trial, patients had to be on stable GDMT for a minimum of four weeks before starting Ivabradine. The greatest benefit here was a reduction in heart failure hospitalization. The main trial that looked at Ivabradine, the SHIFT trial, it resulted in a significant reduction in heart failure hospitalizations, but we haven't seen the same type of benefit in terms of mortality. Okay. So we're looking at less heart failure hospitalizations here when Ivabradine was added. But I'm curious, how many patients in that shift trial were on optimal doses of beta blocker in the background? 
So that's where a criticism comes in. It turns out that only about 25% of the participants were on optimal doses of beta blockade and only about half were on 50% of the target dose. That is a valid criticism since we know that mortality benefit of beta blockers goes even beyond the reduction in heart rate, right? And so it's really important that we uptitrate them as much as possible before we add that ivabradine. Ivabradine, oh, what a word. Well, they did cite that upcitration of the beta blocker was limited by things such as hypotension and fatigue. Ah, I see. So things we run into in real life, but yeah, it does make us wonder, did the underuse of beta blockers in lowering that heart rate play into the fact that Everbradine got to like come in and save the day? And maybe the shift trial kind of overstated its benefits because we were under using beta blockers. Yeah, that's great food for thought and in interpreting the results in a more nuanced way. Either way, the takeaway is that we are going to try to max out those beta blockers as much as possible before we give ivabradine. But I guess, Victoria, before we go ahead and prescribe, are there any particular cases we should avoid starting ivabradine? They should be in sinus rhythm. They cannot be in persistent atrial fibrillation or flutter. And they shouldn't have pre-existing conduction abnormalities. So any concern for heart block or sinus node dysfunction, those would be people who I would not consider this in. And the reason why a patient has to be in sinus rhythm goes back to its mechanism. Oh yeah, you told us that ivabradine blocks the funny channel in the sinoatrial node, right? So if a patient's not in sinus, I guess there's no point in giving a medication that works on the sinus node. (laughs) Exactly. The last point I'll bring up is a positive one. Ivabradine doesn't affect blood pressure and is not limited by renal function. Ah, two, two big wins there. All right, so let me see if I can try to recap what I'm taking away. I think when I see a patient who is on maximally tolerated doses of beta blocker, but their resting heart rate is still above 70 beats per minute, I'll consider adding ivabradine since it may reduce heart failure hospitalizations. I will though have to make sure that the patient is in sinus rhythm, but I thankfully won't have to worry about blood pressure or kidney function. So let's say we've stabilized our patient who initially came in with an acute heart failure exacerbation, and we're now nearing discharge. Well, enter the debate we've all had with our team at some point. What do we start now, and what do we save for the outpatient setting? New diagnosis of heart failure. They have a low EF. We get them started on a beta blocker, an ACER, an ARB. Maybe we even start a Secubitril Valsartan. And then we have this conversation on rounds of, should we start the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist? And there's always somebody who says, I think that we should just defer it to the outpatient setting. Do you know how hard it is to do that from the outpatient setting? You start the prescription. And so you're typing into your EMR, you send the prescription in, and then you need to tell the patient, I'm going to check your blood work in a week to see what happens to your potassium and see what happens to your creatinine. And so you need to send them for blood work in a week. And then your part of you is worried they're not going to get the blood work or they're going to get done too late. And then the blood work comes to your inbox and then the potassium is 5.6. And so you have to call the patient on the phone and then you get a voicemail or a non-working number. Oh, I appreciate this so much. I have had so many friends care for a patient after being discharged from the hospital with a long list of to-dos, transitional items, and just feeling like, wait, why did the team not start the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist inpatient? And then I also have to remind myself in the inpatient setting, there's also all this madness and constant pressure to discharge patients as early as possible. Absolutely. There's varying comfort starting a new med right before discharge. Mm -hmm. Do you keep the patient for a little bit more to just see if any side effects start to creep up or repeat potassium? But 
I mean, I also understand where Dr. Katz is coming from, that if it's possible, always prioritize starting as much as you can in the inpatient setting. So if you have the opportunity to start in the inpatient setting where you can check labs a day or two later, please, please, please do that because it's your golden opportunity in the inpatient setting to have the chance to get as many of these life-saving medications started for your patients as you possibly can. And it's just so, so, so much easier to do it when they're in the hospital than when they're at home. And it can make a huge difference since the number needed to prevent only one death over the next year is just four. And this is for patients who are on all four classes of GDMT. This is mind-blowing, Shreya. And in our last episode, we brought up the good point that if you start all four agents at once, even at low doses the next day, if your patient isn't feeling great, we might not know which one is a culprit. So that's a great point, but that was before the publication of the strong HF trial. This definitely got some eyeballs on how quickly we can initiate all four GDMT as quickly as within two weeks of discharge. What the investigators did is they said, let's compare usual care to GDMT initiation and titration informed by local practices. And this was a multinational trial. Or let's randomize patients to a very aggressive protocolized approach to GDMT initiation and titration. And what they said is that they wanted by two weeks, patients who were discharged with a diagnosis of heart failure from the hospital to be on full dose GDMT. And just to kind of take a sidebar here, full dose GDMT is really high stuff. So we're talking about lisinopril 40, losartan 150, carvedilol at least 25 milligrams twice a day, or uh, toprolol XL 200 milligrams. These doses are a lot higher than what we very commonly wind up seeing on patients who get admitted and certainly higher than when patients get discharged. Uh, as the punchline, what the investigators found is that looking at 180 days, the rate of heart failure readmissions and mortality as a combined outcome was lower. It was also really impressive about the studies that if you look towards 90 days, to, to see which patients or how many patients were actually on full dose GDMT, you'll find somewhere between the 40s to 50s percent uh, mark at, 90, at about two weeks, people were on full dose beta blockers, full dose ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Uh, whereas by contrast, people who were randomized to usual care, we're talking about 5% or less. So that really informs us that we're pretty bad at getting people onto full dose GDMT therapy. Well, 40 to 50% on all max dose GDMT compared to only 5% with usual care. And better readmissions and mortality outcome too. What a win. And so basically the strong HF trial showed us that rapid initiation of all four GDMT agents is safe, well-tolerated, rapidly effective, and overcomes inertia. So to summarize, it's interesting, right, that despite the number of evidence-based treatments we have in heart failure, with usual standard of care, patients are much less likely to be on all four GDMT meds. And maybe this is because of our clunky medical system or the resources we have, probably a lot of it, right? In the Strong HF trial, they had people to see these patients at least four times within like six weeks of discharge, which is awesome. But I guess if we can, we do have this golden opportunity to at least try to get our patients on as many of the four classes classes of GDMT as possible while they're under our close eye in the hospital setting. So last but not least, over time, patients on guideline-directed medical therapy can have complete recovery of their ejection fraction as defined by an EF greater than 50%, partial recovery, an EF between 40 to 50%, or no recovery of their EF where their EF is less than 40%. But does everyone on GDMT have their EF recover? And if so, if our patient's EF does recover, do they still have to be on GDMT? Whenever I'm talking to patients, I get the question all the time, 
So if I go on these medicines, is my heart going to get better? And the answer to that question is, I hope so, but I don't know. And I'm also doing my hardest work to make sure that there isn't a reversible medical cause, that there's something else I can treat differently that will help it get better. I hope that their, that their EF is going to get better. Not everybody gets better. And if you look at the kind of sum total of it, about a third of them will fully recover, a third will partially recover, and a third won't. Um, that, that's not a perfect estimate, but that's kind of how I think about it in my mind. And I looked into this more, and the studies I came across had a wide range of improved EF. That's anywhere from 10 to 40%. That's probably because a lot of this was based on both observational and clinical trial data sets, and also the fact that there are variable etiologies of heart failure. The other kind of big part of heart failure is you need to think about the underlying etiology, and you need to make sure you're working that up appropriately. Yeah. And so we often see the highest rates of ejection fraction recovery when it comes to tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy and those that have hypo or hyperthyroidism. The second highest rates are noted to be with dilated cardiomyopathies that are particularly associated with immune responses. So the ones we see in peripartum cardiomyopathy, viral myocarditis, and systemic inflammatory response syndrome, SIRS. So that's great news if the EF does recover. But then what do we do with the patient's GDMT once their EF is improved? And then the other question that comes up is if their heart does get better, do they need to stay on those medicines forever? And there are two schools of thought with that. One school of thought is, well, your EF is better. You don't need the meds anymore. Why don't you stop them? It's nice to take less meds. But the other school of thought, which is the one that I'm kind of more persuaded by, is that there is something about your phenotype that means that with the right insult, your EF is going to drop. And it is very clear from all of the data that EF is a really good predictor of mortality. It's not a great predictor of exercise tolerance or what you're able to do physically, but it's a really good predictor of mortality. And so if keeping you on these medicines that you've clearly tolerated well enough that you were able to be on them so that your EF got better, you can probably keep going with them. And so in the absence of somebody having real issues with their medicines, I am of the belief that you should probably keep people on these meds forever, even if their EF gets better. So that's great because I've certainly had patients come into clinic and we tell them that their EF got better. And their first question is, well, can I stop taking my meds? But I found it really important to take the time to educate the patient because as Dr. Katz said, with the right insult, the EF will drop again without meds. And there is mortality benefit of just being on the GDMT continually. I think one caveat that our reviewers noted is how the practice of what we do with GDMT is going to vary based on that insult. So for example, with peripartum cardiomyopathy that completely improves, if that patient wants to get pregnant again, they really can't be on GDMT. So clinicians usually start to peel off meds after six months or so with careful monitoring. Absolutely. We know that the ACEs, ARBs, and ARNIs are teratogenic. But Similarly, tachymyopathy, which is how the cool cardiologists say (laughs) tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy, if you fix the tachycardia, oftentimes GDMT can be taken off and people do fine as long as they maintain normal sinus rhythm. I know that if I had myocarditis and my EF dropped and I got put on heart failure meds and my EF got better, or if I was diagnosed tomorrow with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and no secondary cause was found, and I was started on all of these medicines and my EF got better, I would want to stay on them because I don't want my EF to drop again. And I think that you 
reduce the chances as much as possible. You minimize the chance that someone's going to get worse again if you keep them on the cardioprotective medications. And there's no right answer to that question. That is 100% like, what do you think is the, the right thing to do? But at the end of the day, you need to make a decision. And so you're left with making a decision in the realm of really incomplete information. And at least with that incomplete information, at least with the data that we have so far, it's shown us that even among patients whose ejection fractions fully recover, a large portion of them will develop recurrent left ventricular dysfunction and heart failure events. And so per the most recent 2022 guidelines, GDMT should be continued even if the EF improves and fully recovers. That's a wrap for today's episode. And if you found the episode helpful, please share it with your team, your colleagues, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. This episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. So please click on the link in the show notes, answer three questions and get CME credit. Thank you to all the educators and mentors. Thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Susan McElvain, Dr. Randy Goldberg, and Dr. Daniel Kirschenbaum. Thank you to Doc Shabathia for the audio editing. As always, we love hearing feedback. Please email us at hello at gorianpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Just a quick word from our sponsor, the Effective Living Course. Do you want more out of life? Maybe there's just not enough time to do all the things you want, or maybe you just don't know where to start. Meet Dr. Pranay Parikh. So my goal is to show physicians that they can live fulfilled, vibrant lives inside and outside of medicine. And you don't have to give everything and every second of your life to medicine. So the type of person that I really enjoy working with is someone who's pretty successful themselves, but wants to kind of venture out into the world, try to do something else. And Pernay has done it all from real estate investment, podcast host, creating an entrepreneur accelerator program, and also being a full-time doctor and having a ton of time for family. Uh, and it doesn't actually even have to be something that makes money. Rekindle old friendships, old hobbies. If you want a life management system to take on things that you've been putting off for years and get a coach alongside, sign up for Pernay's free webinar September 20th and September 27th. Or if it's past that date, we will put a direct link to his course in the show notes, coreampodcast.com backslash coaching, and you can see if it's right for you.